0: Amen. We serve a God of new things. Amen? Amen. New creations in Christ. Let's give the Lord a round of applause this morning. I want <clears throat> to... You know, it's such a... You know, I was sharing with the 8 o'clock, you know, this morning. You know, it's just a cool thing, you know, when God's people gather together. You know, in many ways, this is, you know, this is our pep rally. You know, on a Sunday morning, this is us gathering together corporately, praising the Lord as we go into uh, the places that he's called us. But there's something powerful... You know, just being able to set those things aside. And I know, again, many walk in with things that maybe the person beside you don't even know about. But to be able to set that aside and say, Lord, you know, I want to lay myself as a willing vessel before you in the praise of God's people and in the teaching of your word. And so that's a powerful thing. So I commend you for being here uh, this morning. We welcome you. If you're a guest with us, we welcome you. Maybe your first time or second time or or maybe your 100th time. I'm learning with our new members classes that some of our new members uh, who are now taking the step of membership have been here longer than me. And I've been here 11 years. And so that's okay. If it takes you that long to take that step of membership, that's all right. God's timing is perfect, right? Um, Anyway, so this past week we had our new members members class. So we do three weeks of new members on Wednesday nights and then not this Saturday, but next we're going to do a Saturday class from 12 to three. And so uh, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do. I shared this with them Wednesday night because I get to hear stories. I get to hear testimony. And it's one of the things I love about our church. I love the diversity of our church. I love the fact that in this room and in our overflow and and in our eight o'clock and our 1115, we come from so many different places. I love that about this place. Some come from, you know, growing up in the church. Others, you know, from not. Maybe this is all new. And so... Um, You know, God has a way of working in the midst of all that. And so it's always very exciting to see the men and women, uh, the families that God is leading into the life of our church. I'm excited about this trip to Israel. Let me make this announcement real quick. At the end of our third service today, we're going to do an interest meeting in room 107. It's this uh, room across the hall from our biggest room back here in room 108 and 109. My father and I are actually leading this trip. Now, we're kind of at a crunch time here with we only got about three weeks left for everything to get turned. In, but if you're interested, we would invite you to come be a part of this interest meeting immediately following the last service in room 107. My cousin Spanky, y'all heard about my cousin Spanky, right? The infamous Spanky, he's he's a doctor now, he teaches in a seminary in North Carolina. Um, and so you have to call him Dr. Spanky. But anyway, so he's 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 coming on this trip as well, and so you'll get to hang out with Spanky for 10 days. That's worth the price of admission. I can promise you that right there. And so again, we're just excited for this trip. It's the week after Mother's Day. So Thursday into the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. It's a 10-day trip, and it's life-changing. I went six years ago, um, and so this will be, I know, my father and I's second trip to Israel. It just cha- it changes the way you read God's Word. It changes the context of passages that you've read hundreds, sometimes thousands of times. And then to see kind of the setting, it just, it brings to life so many things. And so again, if you're interested, we would love for you to be a part of that. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I got to share this before I go into our sermon so I remember in seminary, our professors used to say to us all the time, prepare your hearts to be challenged in the areas that you challenge your people in. I remember hearing that. A couple weeks ago, I challenged you guys to be patient in the parking lot. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember that? And I said, what? Don't lose your testimony in a church parking lot. Do you remember me saying that? Well, this past week... My stumbling block is my car. I'm just going to be very real with you. And, and the place where it happens most is in the merging of 64 to 264, okay? Yeah. And the thing that drives me crazy the most is I've waited in line, I've waited my turn, and you're going to go by everybody who's been waiting. You ain't getting in front of me. I'm just going to tell you that right now, all right? I will hit the car in front of me before I let you get in front of me. <laughs> Don't clap. No, that's sinful. Don't clap. <laughs> I'm confessing my sins right now, so I, I challenged you guys a couple of weeks ago, and then I was doing that this past week, and I felt the Lord go, "Hey, hey, big boy, don't lose your testimony in the church. How about don't use your, lose your testimony anywhere as you're driving the car?" And so John Paul you here, John, you told me about this bumper sticker. I love it. Look at what it says right here. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to find this bumper sticker. That is awesome. That's going to be our fifth measure. We have four measures to gauge our spiritual walk with Jesus. That's going to be our fifth. Take your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to the book of Luke. Hey, I'm in this journey with you, okay? I'm in this process of sanctification with you, and my trigger is my car. The Gospel of Luke. Okay, so what we're doing is we're doing this. We're doing a series surrounded entirely by Jesus, amen? And so what we're going to do, this really goes back to December. It really goes back to us walking through Luke 1 and 2 as we look at the birth narratives. And so what we're going to do, and I don't know how long we'll be in it, we're just going to walk through the Gospel of Luke. And I shared this last Sunday. There may be some Sundays. We fly low, some Sundays we fly high. There may be some sections that we kind of summarize and then others that we actually dive into and really spend time verse by verse. And that's one of those sections this morning. As I was coming to this passage, if you were here with us last week, we looked at the beginning of Luke 3, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist, the one who was preparing the way of the Messiah. I had every intention this week, to be honest with you, to preach the baptism of Jesus. Because that's the next part of Luke's gospel there, verse 20, 21. It's the public kind of initiation of of, of Christ's public ministry. But I felt the Lord just kind of take me back to this passage. If you were here last Sunday, we looked at the first six verses, and then we kind of just read through verses 7 through 20. And I want to spend some time with this. But before we get there in the message of John, let me just catch everybody up very quickly. So go to Luke 1, okay? If you've got your Bibles, go to Luke 1. Because I want you to see this story in the context of how Luke, the physician, I mean, someone who, again, is writing almost like a detailed report of of these stories. Let's just walk through to catch up to Luke 3. If you look at Luke 1, again, we know Luke, the physician. He says, I write to Theophilus. And then verse 4 is critical, that you may know the certainty. So Luke makes sure we understand these aren't myths, these aren't legends, these aren't fairy tales. We're writing from history. And we know that, right? Even as you go back and you look at some of the passages where he begins to talk about the rulers of the day, he gives us the context in which all of this is happening. You go to verse 5, down to verse 25, it's the birth announcement of John the Baptist, that great story of Zacharias, the priest that is serving there. The angel Gabriel appears to him and says, The Lord has heard your prayers. Your wife and Elizabeth will bear a son. And it's John the Baptist. You go down to verse 26, down to verse 38. It's the birth announcement of Jesus to Mary. I love the response of Mary in verse 38. Then Mary said, behold, I am the maidservant of the Lord. And then here's a, a cry of surrender. Let it be. Let it be according to your will, according to your word." We go to verse 39 to verse 45. There's that, that miracle there. As, as Mary visits Elizabeth, the Bible talks about how the babe leaped into the womb of Mary upon her arrival. You find the beautiful song of Mary at the end of chapter 1, verse 46, down to verse 56, where she cries out, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. We had the birth of John the Baptist in verse 57 to 58. The rituals, the temple rituals of John, uh, the, the confirmation of his name there, there in verse 65 and 66. There's the prophet of Zacharias as he's looking upon the child John the Baptist he's then giving prophecy of what this child had been called to do you go to chapter 2 right Luke chapter 2 it's our birth narratives the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and it came to pass you have the temple rituals of Christ in verse 21 down to verse 24 the prophecy of Simeon a beautiful passage there and he says Lord I can now depart in peace you've allowed my eyes to see your salvation There's the the affirmation of Anna, the prophetess, in verse 36 to 38. Twelve years go by. If you look at verse 39 and 40 where it says the family returns to Nazareth, verse 40 says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Twelve years right there in that verse of Scripture. You come to the next, verse 41 to 50, and it gives us that small window into the life of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. As they leave him in Jerusalem, celebrating the feast of the Passover, they come back to the city after three days travel. If you remember, after three days has gone by, she finds Jesus in the temple. And then Jesus' response is what? Why do you seek me? Did you not know in verse 49 that I must be about my father's business? Verse 51 and 52 then, 18 years transpire in Luke 2, where it says, "Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We now come to 30, right? Jesus is 30 years old, and it leads us now to Luke 3. So take your Bibles, if you would, and stand with me in reverence of reading God's Word. We find the launch of the public ministry of Christ, which begins with the fulfillment of prophecy. John the Baptist, the final of the Old Testament prophets, called out from the wilderness to prepare the way of the coming Messiah. Preaching a specific message. A message of repentance. So the Bible tells us that as John is proclaiming these words, the crowd responds. And I want us to go back. Let's just go back and read the prophecy of Isaiah. Verse 4 down to verse 6 is the prophecy 700 years earlier, Isaiah 40. So let's read verse 3 down to verse 6. And then I want you to see the response of the the people who had gathered there in verse 10. But let's begin in verse 3 of Luke chapter 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching, what, a baptism of repentance. Repentance that leads to baptism. A baptism of repentance. The Bible goes on to say this. For the remission of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Go down to verse 10, and I want you to see the response of the people. It's the title of the message this morning. What shall we do? Look what it says. So the people asked him saying, what shall we do? Join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can gather around your word this morning. Lord, your word does not return void. You've promised us that. And so, Lord, as we open our ears, as we open our minds, as we open our hearts, Lord, we pray not just for information, we pray for transformation. And, Lord, we know that your word declares that, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power of the truth that is found in this book, that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there is change, there is newness. Lord, you have promised to take the old and to make new. And you've called us out to be new creations in you, that others might see not a religion, but a Savior, a relationship with a Savior who came and lived and died and rose again. It's the words that we read this morning. And so, Lord, this morning we pray for change. And we pray, Lord, that we would cry out with the same question, Lord, what would you have us to do? Lord, what would you have me to do? As I seek to bring you glory and honor and fulfill the purpose and will of my life, Lord, what would you have me to do? Lead us and guide us in this place. We pray that everything that is said and done We bring honor and glory to Jesus. It's in that name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So we're really going to spend this morning really 7 through 20, right? We're going to take now the message of John and talk a little bit about, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about the pathway to salvation, right? The pathway to salvation is the message that John preached. It's the message that Jesus preached. The message that Paul preached. It's the message that is preached all throughout God's Word. That there's a road that leads to salvation that cannot be bypassed. And it's the road of repentance. And we talked about that last week, right? Faith and repentance. We know Ephesians 2:8 8, 9. Right? For by grace we have been saved through faith that is not of works, lest any man should boast. So we know that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There is nothing we can do to work for our salvation. It's by faith that we are saved. However, if you go to the book of James, right? What does James tell us? James tells us, well, faith without works is, say it with me, is... So I remember as a kid growing up thinking, okay, is the teaching of James contradicting the teaching of Paul? Because Paul tells us, no, we're justified by faith. Paul tells us, no, our religion is a filthy rags. Like, I mean, here's Paul, who's probably the most religious, talking about a zealot. Here is a man who was persecuting believers because of religion. And yet here he is saying, no, we are saved by faith. But yet the Bible declares faith without works is dead. So how do you reconcile the two? Well, they're not contradicting one another. We know that they're teaching the same doctrine. What are they teaching? James is not saying that we're saved by our works. What's he saying? He's saying we are known by our works. And just as John declares in this passage, Jesus declares as well, that there will always be fruit in the life of an individual when there's truly a changed heart. When that pathway of repentance is something that is found in a person's heart from the inside out, you will find an outward change. Not saved by the outward change, but known by the outward change. So Luke is setting the stage here for the arrival of the Savior. Look at, well, let's just walk through this passage if we can. Let's go to chapter 3 and look at verse 2, and we're just going to make our way through. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness to proclaim a message of repentance. John the Baptist, right? John the baptizer comes out of the wilderness with a healthy diet of locusts and honey. That's better than rebel. Wearing camel hairs and a leather belt. What does the Bible say? To prepare the way of the Savior. This dude is preaching is what he's doing. I remember growing up in the church, there was all these different phrases that people would use to describe like like hard preaching, like fire and uh, brimstone preaching. This dude was bringing the word. That's what it says about Ezra. He was bringing the word. Here's another one. He was laying it down. Have you ever heard that before? He was shucking the corn. Y'all ever heard that before? He was walking the dog. You've ever heard that before? That's all North Carolina stuff. I mean, we were rednecks. Anyway, Luke 3, 7. This dude was preaching, right? And, and, and he's, he's, he is preaching with boldness. I mean, here are religious leaders who are coming out, Pharisees, Sadducees. We know that because of Matthew's account. If you go to Matthew's account of the same thing that is happening, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees specifically, Matthew tells us, Coming to his baptism, John the Baptist cries out, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Go down to verse 8 and look at what he says. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to save to yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And so we talked about this last week, kind of the setting of what's happening here. Here are these religious leaders. They want to know what's going on. The crowds are flocking to John the Baptist. And they're, being, they're going through this baptism of repentance, a confession of their sins, their acknowledgement that they are in need of the forgiveness of God. And they're just standing by. And John the Baptist looks at him and says, okay, what brought you guys here? And he refers to them as sons of a snake, sons of Satan. And what does he say to them? He says, You think your heritage, that you think your heritage has earned your right standing? Before God, he calls them out. He says, because you're sons and daughters of Abraham, you don't think that you need to have a heart of repentance? Because of your heritage, you think that you are in right standing before God? He says, listen, God could even take these stones and call them out to be sons of Abraham. He says, you guys are so worried about the outside that you've missed the most important place. That's the inside. I mean, Jesus talks about this all the time. As he looks at the Sadducees and the Pharisees, what does he say? You guys are just so interested in washing, whitewashing the outside, but you've missed the inside. That's why Jesus refers to them as uncircumcised hearts. What does that mean? He says, you're keeping the law. You're keeping all the ceremonies. You're doing all these things that you think will equal your right standing before God, but your heart has never been changed. John says, listen. This is not about you bringing religion before the throne of God. This is not about even you bringing a baptism before the throne of God. This is you bringing a heart of repentance to the throne of God. Seeing your sins, seeing yourself the way God sees your sins. Therefore, what, what does he say? Bear fruit worthy of Repentance. I think about the words of Jesus, right? You go back to the triumphal entry of Christ. Take your Bibles, go to Luke 19, real quick. Marsh your spot here, and let's jump forward because Jesus says the same thing. If you go to Luke 19, that's the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, right? Palm Sunday is what we celebrate, the week leading up to the cross. And we have this passage here that tells us kind of what takes place. It says, Then as he was now drawing near the center of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. And praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now listen to, listen to the response of the religious leaders. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, heresy. Right? They're proclaiming your God. They said, rebuke your disciples. Now I love what Jesus says. Verse 40. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that even if they keep silent, even the stones will cry out. And then he dropped the mic. The Bible don't say that right there. I see that in my head. I don't know why. Riding on a donkey. What does John say? What? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. God says, listen, Jesus even says, listen, if they don't cry out my glory, all of creation will cry out my glory. John preaches this message of repentance. Jesus says the same thing. You go to Matthew 13, you find this passage, if you remember this. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. There are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravenous wolves. How will we know them? Verse 16, you will know them by what? Their fruit. Their fruit. Jesus says, listen, your standing before God is not based on the things on the outside. And we have to be careful of that sometimes. You know, sometimes, again, I get it. Some people say, okay, be careful of the sinner's prayer. I get what they're saying in that. Listen, I believe in the sinner's prayer. I was saved by the sinner's prayer, but I understand the caution of that. The caution of, hey, just saying these words don't save us. Of course not. But the words should what? Indicate the heart. The word should be significant of the heart that cries out, Lord, I'm a sinner, I am lost, there is nothing I can do to, 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 to solve my greatest problem, which is the fact that I stand opposed to you in the throne of God. You know, what is he saying? You know, we gotta be careful of even, okay, walking an aisle, right? I've heard people say, be you know, caution of that, that, that our faith is found in what? Well, I get what they're saying. It all comes back to the same teaching it's a heart. It's a heart that cries out. It's a heart of repentance. It's a heart that recognizes their need of a Savior. John says this, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And the Bible tells us that there's evidence of that. If you go to the teachings of Paul, write this down. if If you take notes, write down Galatians 5, if you would. Many of you will recognize this passage, Galatians 5, verse 19 through 20. Here's a good question What's the difference between the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit? That's a great question. That's why I love preaching you guys. You guys ask the best questions. So let's answer that question. Here's Galatians 5, 19. Listen to what Paul says. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Now, again, let's, let's hear what he's saying. He's not saying we never sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these things characterize our lives. So the works of the flesh characterize our lives. It doesn't mean a believer will never fall into these things. That's not what he's saying. The characterization of our lives, running from our sins rather than to our sins. But those who are still running to their sins, a heart that has never been changed, the work of the flesh, he says, let's give evidence of it. Here it is. Works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, cutting people off in a parking lot. No, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and of the like. Now what does Paul say? Which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, those who practice, do you see that characterization? Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But here it is. You want to see a changed life? You want to see a heart of repentance? You want to see, as Paul declares, fruits worthy of repentance? Here it is, the work of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit, say it with me, is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the flesh, let us walk in... Or if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And I recognize, and we talked about this last Sunday, this is not a once and for all thing, right? Uh, the life of, of following Christ begins at surrender. It continues at surrender. It begins at repentance. Guess what? It continues at repentance. This is a lifelong thing, right? Justification, sanctification. What is Justification. Romans 5, 8 declares, he made him who knew no sin become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's crying out, Lord, there's nothing I can do to solve this problem of my standing against your holy throne. But Christ came. So I declare through repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin, through repentance and faith, I declare my profession of faith in Jesus justified before holy God. What as the Bible tells us? That just begins the journey. Right, there's a lifelong journey for all of us. That process of sanctification and praise God for his patience. Can I get an amen? Amen. That he loves us just the way that we are. We come to him just the way that we are, but he loves us way too much to let us stay that way. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that then what? Bears fruit of repentance. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of our lives that takes the truth of God's word and it gets into the cracks and corners of our hearts. And how does it play out? It plays out in the outward. It plays out in our marriages. It plays out in our homes. It plays out in the workplace. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that the presence of God is living inside of you. And therefore you are bearing fruit of repentance. I love the cry of the crowd. Look at what they say in verse 10. So the people asked him saying what? What shall we do? You find that, right? You find that in scripture. When someone comes to the realization of their wicked heart, when someone comes to the realization of their sins that is leading them down a road that's leading to hell, you find an individual that cries out before God, God, what would you have me to do? I recognize that I bring nothing to the table in this manner. So what would you have me to do? You see this in the conversion of Paul. If you go to Acts 9, there's that beautiful testimony on the road to Damascus. If you remember, let me just read this verse. It says, As he journeyed from Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Verse 4. Then he fell on the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now that phrase is there in your King. How many King James versions? Raise, Raise your hand. All right. Not many. New King James version. Raise your hands. That phrase will be in that translation. If you've got an NIV or an ESV or any of those things, you won't find that phrase there. You actually have to go to Acts 26. You go to Acts 26, it's the testimony of Paul before King Agrippa. And he gives that testimony there of why are you kicking against the goads. What is that a picture of? It was a phrase that was very known 2,000 years ago, more of a rural thing. Why are you fighting against your fate? That's basically what it means. It's this picture of a farmer that has the oxen, right? It has the oxen, and it's steering the oxen by the goads. And on the bottom of that goad is is basically iron that would prick into the skin. And so anytime that oxen would fight against the leading of the farmer, what would it do? It would kick against it, basically causing more harm to what it was trying to do. God looks upon Paul and says, why are you fighting against what I'm doing in your life? Can't that be said about all of us? Can't that phrase be said? How many times has the Lord come to you and say, why are you fighting against it? Why don't you surrender this to me? You've tried everything possible to fix the situation. You've tried everything humanly possible to accomplish this on your own. And hopefully all you've seen is that you're no match for it. How about laying it in my hands, right? It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a beautiful story of here are these disciples. Many believe that there were probably 20,000 that were there. And they're with a problem. They got to feed these people. And they got one lunch. You remember how many pieces of bread? You might know how many pieces of bread. How many pieces of fish? Two pieces of fish. When was the miracle accomplished? When it was placed in the hands of the Savior. I have this visual, right? The feeding of the 5,000. The disciples are walking around with their heads down because what do they see? They see the problem. They see the overwhelmness of their problem. They see the fact that, man, we can't do anything to feed all these people. And I just see this picture of Jesus is sitting there like, hey, you know I'm God, right? You know I'm God. And I just see these disciples just walking around with their heads down, just walking around with their heads down. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? When was the miracle performed? When it was surrendered To the hands of Jesus. I don't know about you. That's a message to me. I do the same thing, right? I look at my stuff, and I look at my struggles, and my head's down, my head's down. I'm like, man, I'm looking at this from what I bring to the table, and it is overwhelming. Yes, it is overwhelming because I recognize that I can't do this. I wonder how many times the Lord just says, hey, when are you going to place your life in my hands? When are you going to place this situation in my hands? When are you going to place this pain in my hands? Because when it's in your hands, you get to accomplish what you can do. When it's put in my hands, then it can be accomplished in what I can do. Look at this picture of what John is painting. Go back and look at this. Verse 10, it says, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do? He gives them application. Look at verse 11. He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. I love this, right? I mean, here's John preaching this message of repentance, but he gives them application. He says, okay, you're crying out. What do we do? He said, I'll tell you what you do. I'll tell you what you do. It begins with a heart that is laid before the Lord, that surrenders before the Lord. But then on the outside, there should be fruit of the inside. He says, clear evidence of a changed heart is a heart of generosity. You want to see a changed life? You want to see a changed heart? You want to see fruit worthy of repentance? You will find a heart of generosity. Listen, how could we not? be generous. Here we go. John three sixteen. Say it with me. Ready? For God so loved the world that he, say it with me, he, the core of the God that we serve is that he gave. You know, our flesh says me, right? One of the first things a child learns is the word what? Mine. Where do they learn that from? Where do they learn that from? It comes pretty natural, right? Like I got a little sinner at home. He's five years old. I got a little sinner at home. <laughs> I didn't teach him to sin. That came very naturally to him, right? I mean, for a five-year-old to, to look at someone and say, okay, uh, did you do this? Did you eat that cookie? And he's got chocolate all over his face. And he looks at me, no, I didn't eat that. Where did he get that from? He got it from his mom. I understand that. But he got it from both of us. <laughs> I always use that joke. It's bad. <laughs> it's his sinful nature. Our flesh says what? Mine, mine, mine. But a heart that's truly been changed says, Lord, everything I have is yours. How could it not be? Because without what you've given to me, where would I be? Without the hope of a savior that was freely given to me, where would I be? How could I not have a heart of giving? How could I not have a heart of generosity? John says, listen, you want to see fruit of repentance? You're going to see a generous heart. You're going to see a life that no longer just lives for themselves, but follows the example and model of Christ to serve others. Clear evidence of a changed heart, a heart of generosity. Look at the next part, verse twelve and thirteen. A changed heart, a repentant heart, is also a heart of honesty. Look at verse twelve. Then tax collectors who also came to be baptized and said to them, asked the same question, "Teacher, what shall we do?" And he said to them, "Collect no more than what is appointed." To you, One of my favorite stories is Zacchaeus. You know that story, right? You go back to Luke 19. Do you remember the song? You remember the song? Let's sing the song. We ain't got time to sing the song. What is the song? Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And we're talking about the lowest of society. We're talking about the ones that people viewed as the thieves of society. John says, listen, fruit of repentance is a changed heart as a result changed actions. Not only is it a generous heart, it's an honest heart. It doesn't mean that you never lie. It's not what it means. But it changes the course. It changes the direction. He even speaks to the soldiers. Now, this is so interesting to me. These are Roman soldiers who had gathered here. There's a crowd gathered. There are religious leaders. They, too, asked the question of John. Look at verse 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. Not saved by your works but known by your works. That a heart that's truly been transformed by the power of the blood of Jesus is a life that has been transformed. Hear what I'm not saying. doesn't mean we never sin. doesn't mean we're perfect, obviously. But it does change the direction of our hearts. And a child of God, truly a child of God, that has truly been changed from the inside out, listen, you can be out of fellowship with God. He ain't going to let up on you. There's some of you here this morning, he ain't letting up on you. I've been there. I'm there every week. He ain't going to let up on you. Because what does the Bible say, right? The Bible tells us that this part of this process of sanctification is what? The refiner's fire. And he speaks to that here. Look at verse 15 and 17. He sets the record straight. The people begin to utter and say, hey, is this the Messiah? Maybe he's the Messiah. He's preaching this powerful message. Is John the Messiah? He sets the record straight. Look at verse fifteen. Now, as the people were in expectation, they reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was Christ or not. John answered and said, "This I indeed baptize you with water, but there is one mightier than I, who is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you not just with water. Listen to what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's so when one fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out." His threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is John proclaiming? What is he saying? John declares that the most he could do was baptize them with water. He had no access to the Holy Spirit. He had no power to save, but what was he doing? He was preparing the way. And the road of preparation to receive a Savior is a heart of repentance, is a heart that sees themselves the way God sees them. He says, listen, I'm here to baptize you with water, but when Christ comes, and we know next week we're going to see here comes Christ walking 80 miles from Nazareth to be baptized. He says when Christ comes, he will baptize you not just with water, but with fire, with the Holy Spirit. He will indwell you by his Spirit. He will Will cleanse you by his spirit he will purify you by his spirit he says water washes the dirt on the outside but the holy spirit burns the impurities from the inside there's a difference between the two it's the work of god in our lives right let me tell you something man if you're here today and you know christ is your lord and savior you are a work in progress can i get an amen amen, amen. we all are and part of that refiner's fire is why listen god's not just interested in making us happy His main priority is what? Our holiness. Let me ask you a question. Anything that leads us closer to God is a blessing. If you believe that, say amen. Amen? Amen. Think about that. Cancer? Blessing? Does it lead us closer to the Lord? Tragedy? The loss of a loved one? A blessing? Does it lead us closer to the Lord? I remember reading, man, this, this, this illustration of the goldsmith, right? A goldsmith who takes what is most precious to them, that gold. And what is their job? Their job is to burn away the impurities. That through what? The refiner's fire. And that's uncomfortable. Being put in the fire is uncomfortable. Can I get an amen? Amen. Some of you are in the fire this morning. Being put in the fire is uncomfortable. What does he do? He burns away the impurities. How does the goldsmith know, right? He knows just amount, the right amount of heat. Too much heat will ruin what's most precious to him. Too little heat will not accomplish what he needs to accomplish. So he knows just the right amount. you see the sovereignty of God working in the midst of our fires, in the midst of our storms, in the midst of our struggles? How does the refiner know when he is able to take what is most precious out of the fire when he sees his reflection? Isn't that our lives? As we walk with the Lord, as we spend time with the Lord, as we take the words of Scripture As the Bible describes, cuts like a two-edged sword, deep to bone and marrow, a discerner of our thoughts and motives. What is it? It's the process of sanctification. To empty us of us so that we may be filled with him. To ask the question every single day, a thousand times a day, Lord, what would you have me to do? How could I not be willing How could I not be a life that is laid upon the altar because of what you've given to me with every head bowed and every eye closed? There are some of you this morning, you're in the fire, man. And let me tell you from personal experience, the enemy lies, I believe, the most in the fire. Are Some of you here today, you know the Lord. You've walked with the Lord. But man, you're in a fire. And the Lord's using it. There's no doubt about it. But the enemy is trying to cast doubt in the midst. of Whatever it is, the Lord has you in it. We know the promises of God's word, right? We know all the promises. He's faithful. We know that. We sing the songs that all of his promises are true and amen. We know that what he leads us to, he's going to lead us through. Hey, easier said than done. What does it require? The emptying of us and the consistent surrender of our hearts. It begins with repentance. It continues with repentance. Begins with surrender. It continues with surrender. To cry out, Lord, what would you have me to do with my situation today, Lord? What would you have me to do because I've tried my own stuff. I know where it's gotten me. What I want to do, what you're asking me, Lord. What would you have me to do with my life, Lord? I'm struggling with seeing how all this connects, but I trust you. What would you have me to do? What would you have me to do with my marriage? You know how the enemy is attacking and opposing. What would you have us to do? As you flip through the pages of this book, what do you find? You find that the place of power is on our face before God, surrendered. God, here's my life. Here's my mess. Here's my stuff. Here's my sins. Here's my strongholds. Here's my addictions. Here's my feelings. But, Lord, I'm tired of carrying it. Like those disciples carrying around five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish. I'm tired of trying to figure this out. I'm placing it in the arms of my seat. That's where the miracle takes place. And, Lord, may you be glorified just as you were on that mountainside in accomplishing this amazing miracle. May you be glorified with my life. May it be a miracle just as powerful as the feeding of the 5,000. That when others see my life, And see your work in my life. There would be no question. The fruit, the fruit, is the result of your spirit living in me. Listen, if you're here today and you've never had that initial surrender, that initial repentance of Lord, I see me the way you see me. Sinful heart, a sinner by nature, a sinner by choice, and because of my sins, I'm separated. I acknowledge, Lord, there's not anything I can do. There's no religion. There's no morals. There's no ordinance. There's nothing I can do to accomplish only what you can accomplish in my heart. So I lay it before you. And I cry out to Jesus. We have our spiritual response team here as we do each week. What is the Lord asking you today? What is he asking you to trust in me today? And I ask you to stand right where you are as we go through the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. We come before you this morning, Lord, and we lay our stuff before you. Lord, there are many in this place who are tired. There are many in this place who are weary. There are many in this place who are frustrated, who are discouraged. And Lord, so many times it's the result of our own efforts. And so, Lord, today we submit, we surrender, we lay it in your hands with great expectation and anticipation what you're going to do. And may you be glorified in the midst of it all. We pray it, we ask it, we believe it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.